This emergency David Aznar gets sacked from Real Madrid Feminino episode of the Managing Madrid podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming and champions of the world. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and Manscaped just launched their fourth-generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. You heard that right, the 4.0. Join over 4 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with this exclusive offer for you. 20% off and free worldwide shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. 20% off and free shipping with the code MANAGINGMADRID at manscaped.com. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. This episode is also brought to you by The Guild. The Guild is an Austin-based hospitality startup that offers tech-enabled apartment-like hotel accommodations in luxury buildings in Dallas, Miami, Cincinnati, and now San Antonio and Denver. And the great thing about it is you can check in without a key. You can get everything stocked in the kitchen, everything you need, all from the comfort of your own phone. How it works, check into your room, pre-stock your fridge with your favorite snacks, order extra supplies, or get recommendations from a local concierge, all from the convenience of your phone through an app and texting the concierge. They will have everything sorted out for you when you arrive. You unlock the door with your phone, no key required. It is super great. The Guild sponsored the Managing Madrid podcast for our show in Dallas. They hooked us up with a stay there, and uh, it was a pleasure working with them. They have so many locations around the United States. Go to their website, The Guild. That's The Guild, G-U-I-L-D, and use code Managing Madrid, all one word, for a 15% off discount exclusively for Managing Madrid podcast listeners. That is valid through December 31st, 2021. So if you're traveling to any of those cities, Dallas, Miami, Cincinnati, San Antonio, Denver, in the foreseeable future, book before December 31st and get a 15% discount with the code Managing Madrid and you will not regret it. Also, see you guys in New York on Saturday. I think there's a couple tickets left, so if you want to book your stay, book your uh, spot rather in New York, you can go to the show notes, click on that one. Also, January in Miami. February, we have London in the UK. We have DC in March, Chicago in April, Mumbai in May. All of those cities, if you want to book your spot, they're in the show notes. It's a massive Maradisa party, and if you miss out, you're going to regret it because you're going to see how much fun it is afterwards. So, uh, book your spot to all those shows, any of those shows. Um, you can book to all of them if you want. We actually have one Managing Madrid podcast listener, Brandon Stevens, who has the record now. I think he's attended four podcasts around the world. So if you want to be on Brandon's level, book your, book your spot to all those shows. All right, without further ado, here is the David Aznar reflection, breakdown, the new coach, everything you need to know about this whole situation from Om Arvin and Grant Little. They have you covered. Enjoy. Nice article in the Managing Madrid uh, blog. Uh, wonderful lads that do a great job there. And worth reading about that man there. Karim Benzema needs to rest and the numbers reveal why. Hello and welcome to Las Blancas Podcast. I'm your host, Om Arvind, and as always, I'm joined by Grant Little. There's been a lot going on today, Grant. Obviously, the thing that's attracted most people's attention is the Ballon d'Or. The part you and I cared about was Alexia Piqueas getting to lift it, long-awaited, really well-deserved. 
But there is a piece of news that's more relevant for Real Madrid fans today, which is that in the early hours in the morning for you and I, David Osnar was sacked and Alberto Toril was hired as the new manager. It completely blindsided everyone. I think it's fair to say. I mean, there's always been rumors floating around about whether Osnar is gone, whether someone else is coming in. But it kind of seemed like after that, there was that initial flood of reports weeks ago, right? Where there was the rumors about the letter being sent to the board and people coming and telling me he's gone. After that, it seemed like we all kind of settled into acceptance, like he's not going anywhere. And everything I was hearing was saying he has the faith of the board. He has the faith of Ana Rosel, obviously. And it has to be a truly catastrophic situation for him to leave. And our question was like, how can it possibly get worse than this? And I don't think any of that was incorrect. It just seems like somewhere along the way, someone in the board or Florentino just made an about turn and they're like, something changed our mind. And I'm super curious as to what that is, given everything we've seen up until this point. And we'll get to the whole discussion about why now, as opposed to before, but just real quick. So per Micah Jimenez and Aymara Hill of us, they say that the poor results in domestic competition, in addition to the two defeats against PSG, were the trigger for Osnar leaving and that just like it catching all the fans by surprise, the departure caught Osnar himself by surprise and the players by surprise because the players understood from the board that Osnar would be back. And so, yeah, it essentially blindsided everyone. It kind of feels like this came from nowhere. Another interesting thing that Ana Rosel says, uh, pardon me, that Micah Jimenez and Aymara Hill mentioned in the article almost kind of like offhand, is that Ana Rosel's position might be in danger now. And obviously, Ana Rosel was someone who backed Osnar. It's pretty unlikely that this was her decision. Just keep tabs on that. I've heard a bunch of conflicting information over months about what Ana Rosel's future is. Some people telling me he's gone at the end of the year. Some people saying it's, it's more complicated than that. It's not, it's not going to happen like that. So if you're one of the people that wants to believe that she's gone, this is like, I guess, a tiny piece of information from two reporters from us who cover women's football regularly, kind of hinting that that might be the case, but I don't know how much to, to take away from that. New coach Alberto Toril has got a contract till June 30th, 2023. So yes, that's through the end of next season. So it does not appear on face value to be an interim appointment. They're appointing this guy to just be the new coach. You woke up and saw this and you couldn't believe your eyes, right? Yeah, I woke up, grabbed my phone, open up Twitter. There's notifications on the Las Blancas account. I get tweet notifications for Real Madrid Feminino. And I thought I was in some kind of dream. I was like, of all the times to sack this guy, you know, it wasn't five games winless at the beginning of the season with a 4-0 beating to Levante, a 2-0 loss to Atleti at home. Not that. Not any of the like catastrophic performances we've seen throughout the year. It's losses, apparently, to a PSG side that is far and away better than us. And a draw against Alaves, 
you know, I was just shocked. You know, a lot of the times you try and rationalize what maybe a front office is doing, and it seems impossible to do that with this Real Madrid office, especially now after we basically thought that Osnar was like unsackable because how could it get worse? And then it, and then he gets sacked out of the blue. I was like just reeling in the morning trying to figure out what in the world happened, how this happened, but also kind of happy because, you know, this is a change that we both advocated for and both knew that the club needed a different coach to take them to their fullest potential. But then there's questions about real and what his, his credentials are for this. So it was, it was a whirlwind to wake up to. It was a whirlwind with Chiringuito getting in on the action and dropping the exclusiva. I mean, let's be honest, they're a complete joke of a show, but through their connections with Real Madrid, when the time comes, they generally have reliable information. And so obviously I missed that. I only saw like the official announcement. That's when I logged on and it was like, what is happening? But that stirred up a whole whirlwind of stuff. And apparently Real Madrid were prepping everything and, and they had their own process of how they were going to do this. And then Chiringuito dropped it and they're like, oh shit, we got to get on the thing. And so, yeah, it's just weird, strange, random, out of the blue. Those are the words that come to mind when trying to describe this. And so I just got some information now as we're recording this, but apparently the true catalyst for Osnar's departure was the subs he made versus Alaves, which I mean is like, those were awful subs, right? Like we discussed it at length on the previous podcast about how that basically completely turned around the tenor of the game, right? We were on top, we were dominating. We just had to stick with what we were doing because it was working. Osnar had actually done something that was good and it was working. And then he just destroyed all his own work. And you guys would have heard me on, on the prior podcast, just like how frustrated and defeated I sounded. I guess, I guess that had the same effect with Florentino or whoever. They're like, nah, man, this is enough. But the real question is why... Why is now the moment of enough is enough? It really makes me continue to wonder, like, like what exactly was going on? Was, were people just not paying attention to the team throughout the season? And then, like, after they just kind of, like, fell asleep after match day three, and then they come back to this Alaves game, they see the subs, they look at the league table for the first time in weeks, and they're like, what the hell is going on? The question is why now? And beyond just any specific reason, but really, the, really, I guess the question is, like, why not before as opposed, to, as opposed to why now? Because I think we have a decent sense of why now. And I guess we'll never really have the answer for that, but we've had our suspicions about the extent to which there is attention and care on this project. And so I think that kind of speaks to the broader moment. But, like, genuinely, I would really love to know why watching everything we've seen, you know, through the first few weeks of the season, like that wasn't a huge red flag on top of some stuff we'd seen last season when the results were coming. But we are where we are now. And we have a new coach. And I think the announcement of this particular coach like kind of adds to this feeling of randomness as well. Because Alberto Toril, I think a lot of people will be lying if they had this guy's name on their radar to take over as Real Madrid Femino coach. He's never coached in the women's game before. He hadn't 
been first team coach since 2017, where he was the coach of Elche. And we're going to go through and give you all that information on him, et cetera, et cetera. But it feels like, and, and his like kind of crowning achievement is being the guy who took Real Madrid's Castilla side, the, the golden generation side to Segunda in 2011-12. It just, it just kind of feels like, well, here's a guy who's associated with Real Madrid. We got to get rid of Osnar, so let's just put him in charge and see what happens. Grant, I know you have thoughts on this. Yeah, so I, I kind of talked about the whirlwind of emotion. You know, I saw I'm writing up the little thing on managing Madrid, and I'm like, okay, Osnar is gone. Who's replacing him? I personally have never heard of Alberto Toril. You know, maybe I'm a fake Madridista because of that, but um, <laughs> I'm just not plugged into that. So. Mm-hmm. I kind of looked him up, went to his Wikipedia page. It, it confirmed my you know, suspicions that this guy probably has never been in the women's game, has no actual experience in the women's game, which, you know, we've seen people successfully make that transition. But I think that with everything that's gone on this past year, it's important that that people have experience in the women's game and, you know, there's there's a much larger to conversation to be had about that, but that's something I was hoping for. You know, we'll never get any information about who other potential coaching candidates were. I doubt there were any. I think that they picked this guy and they said, "Here he is. Um, he's done some good things at the helm of of teams, but he's also struggled." It just was another thing it was like a double whammy of why now for Osnar and why this guy for the coach you know and I'm not trying to write him off immediately he could be a great coach it just seemed like if they were going to put Toriel in charge make him an interim till the end of the season then you have time to see if he does well and then you can also have a deeper look at coaches in the women's game around the world who you could potentially bring for a much longer term project. Yeah. I was just a little, a little disappointed that we were like 2023. This guy's never had any experience in the women's game here are the reins, especially after what we just went through. Look, we could easily terminate the contract in the summer and look for other options. I wouldn't rule that out, but I do think it's fair to kind of have this sense of like, well, this just kind of feels like we picked someone up because we didn't really know who to go to. And really, I think there should have been some deep thought being put in for a long time now about, okay, if we're going to get rid of Osner, who can we bring in? Not that there's like a ton of, of super obvious options out there. At the moment, we've discussed Sanchez Vera, we've discussed Luis Cortez. Um, you know, maybe those weren't appealing to to Real Madrid management at the moment. But yeah, there, well, there's Lu- kind Luis of... Luis Cortez is in a job now. So he was yeah, probably but at, at the time when the decision was made. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's also a good point. So it just does come off like a bit like, well, he was associated with Real Madrid, so here's the job. And the lack of experience in women's football is, I guess, interesting to have in a, co- in a coach coaching the women's team. But let's go through what we do know about Alberto Toriel, which is kind of really the main point of this podcast. And look, I, I, I'm just going to say upfront, I think most of it is yet, yet to be seen, right? All of this is preliminary judgment. All of this is coming off like really quickly 
put together info, including, you know, the, the games I was able to watch in between the Ballon d'Or ceremony to try to get an idea and a sense of what his tactical style and philosophy is. I don't think any of the questions we have right now about him is really going to be answered until like at the very least, like six, seven games in, and maybe not even then. Like if you guys remember way back, the amount of like patience we had with Osnar before like really deciding our firm opinions on him was really, it was a really long time. It was like more towards like the halfway point in the season. Like we, we like taking our time, looking at large sample sizes before we make decisions. Obviously things are going to be super weird coming in the middle of everything and having to just no time to kind of put together what he wants to put together. So just keep all that in mind that these are all very like cautious caveated things we're talking about besides just the straight facts that I'm going to mention and reel off before we get there just real quick. It's, Pertinent to mention Irene Ferreras, who obviously was the assistant coach brought in this season. I've heard conflicting things, but I think I think it's correct to say that Osnar was the one who actually requested her, which might explain why upon sacking Osnar, Irene was not just just not appointed as head coach. But I'm not certain. And I certainly would have been fine with Irene being appointed as head coach. Like that was the number one option for most people actually, right? When, when we were having this discussion multiple weeks ago and we're like, if Osnar is going to go, who would it be? A lot of people just kind of settled on Irene. She's the solid interim option. I'm not entirely clear why didn't we, we didn't go with that, but it might be possible because she was one that Osnar chose. And it's not that common to basically like keep someone in if they were considered to be like part of like the you know the coach's inner circle or something right they might be considered part of the problem so i don't know that's just me trying to reason it out but again we'll just have to see how everything develops moving forward it's also possible that they looked at it in a just as a coach themselves and just they you know they didn't rate her so we'll we'll, we'll see about that but Moving on to the actual information about Toriel, which is why I suppose most of you would be here, because probably the things you've talked about so far, you've caught bits and pieces of just by being in the Real Madrid Feminino Twitter sphere, or you've caught some of the articles like the Oz article we were talking about. So yes, he does have a contract until June 30th, 2023. He was a former player, which is where his Real Madrid connection started. He played for Real Madrid B. He made five appearances for the first team, and he had like a standard career, right? A short career playing for a bunch of clubs, was in the first division for, for a little bit, went to lower divisions, how most players' careers pan out, but he was in the game. He was a professional footballer, which is not something most people can say. And then starting in 2009, he managed Real Madrid Juvenil. And that was kind of his introduction to Real Madrid itself. He'd done some coaching with youth teams in the past, but this was like his big leg up. And he did coaching with them. People in charge were impressed. January 2011, he's appointed coach of Real Madrid Castilla in Segunda División B, so the third division. And immediately he rattles off eight consecutive wins. After that, he gets his contract renewed for two seasons. And Real Madrid Castilla finishes the season third with 71 points. And they get the qualification to the promotion playoffs, which Castilla lose. So they're in Segunda División B again for the 2011-12 season. And this is like the great founded Castilla season that fans of Castilla love to talk about. 
It was the golden generation side with Morata, Carvajal, Nacho, Jose Lu, and, and of course Hesse. And they just they destroyed everyone. They topped their division in Segunda División B with 78 points. They were 14 points ahead of second place, far and away the best team. They easily won the Champions playoff and they were promoted to Segunda. And as it stands, that's basically Toril's crowning achievement. People I've talked to who are very familiar with Castilla are quite fond of him from those days. And they think he's, he's a pretty good coach. Although it did go sour the next season, we're obviously being in Segunda, one step away from La Liga, which obviously Castillo would never go to. But just speaking about the coach himself, I mean, it's a totally different story, right? And it did not go well to start the season. He was fired November 19th, 2013, after a 6-0 loss to Abar, and Castillo were in 22nd and last position. When this happened, after he was fired, Castillo recovered to eighth place by the end of the season, which was two spots outside of qualification to the promotion playoffs, which, again, wouldn't be very relevant for, for Castillo because they can't go to La Liga. But just to kind of give you a sense of what eighth place looks like in the table. So that was like the end to his, his tenure at Real Madrid, right? After that, there's no associations with Real Madrid until he comes back to Real Madrid Feminino. And he just isn't a coach, as far as I know for three years until he becomes Elche coach June 28th, 2016 in Segunda. So he's back in Segunda and he basically sees out the season with them. And when he's released at the end of the season, Elche were in second to last place. That's 21st place in Segunda. And they got relegated with 43 points. And just for reference, Elche were in Segunda the prior season and they were 11th in the table with 57 points. So just they were safe, right? They got to, to live another year in Segunda. And after this, in 2018, he went to China to become part of the coaching staff for Guangzhou Evergrande. And that's kind of the end of the story until Rounder Feminino. So it's not an exemplary CV, to be honest, right? It's Mainly what we're talking about here and what gets everyone super hyped or or the people that kind of watch that time that gets people hyped about what he can do is that short period of time where he took Real Madrid Castilla to Segunda with that golden generation side. And I guess that's kind of what his reputation rides on. Now, I'm not making any argument one way or the other. This is just the facts about what his record are is really, really hard to decipher managerial impact from actual team performance, right? It's super possible that the reason for Real Madrid-Castilla's brilliant 2011-12 season is you just had, you had Hesse, you had Morata, you had Carvajal. Like, with those players in the third division, I mean, what, what can go wrong, right? You're, you're going to have an amazing time as long as you're not dragging them down. It's also super possible that, like, all good coaches do they have great talent and then they enhance them. And that when he went to Segunda, he lost crucial players, right? Obviously, uh, Danny Carvajal goes to Bayer Leverkusen and he enjoys a very successful loan there. So it's not like he had the same team that was as talented. And so he has a weaker team in a much tougher division. And it's possible there was bad luck and stuff that happened. And I don't know enough from that time. And I haven't had enough time today to go and dig through all of that. But it's highly possible there was bad luck. 
And, you know, it just wasn't realistic for, for him to do as well that next season. It's highly possible that there was flaws with his coaching and he couldn't, you know, do the things he needed to do. And then it's not like Elche gives us a definitive answer, like, as to who he has as a coach either way, right? Because it's super easy for a team to, like Elche, who are a really, really small club. That was only their second time ever, I think in Segunda or their only time being in Segunda for this consecutive time ever, like who knows what happened there, right? I haven't had the time to watch every single LJ game from 2016-17. And to be honest, I'm not going to do that. I just watched a couple games and I can speak more to, to some tactical things I picked up. But again, what's really going to answer any of our questions about Toriel's quality is what we see in the future and what we see with Real Madrid Femenino which, which might be a little unsatisfying to say, but I think it's really the fairest thing to do. I'm not going to sit here and pretend I have this extremely good picture about who he is. I'm starting to gain some idea, which I'll get into a little bit, but for now, I'm, let's be cautious with the things we're saying. And just obviously in classic Primera Berdola fashion, his first game will be December 4th versus Villarreal. And as it stands, it's not going to be televised. So we, there's a high probability we might not be able to watch the first game where Torillo is in charge. But Grant, your impressions on his CV and whether there's anything we can take away from it. Yeah, like I said, I mean, I just wish that we would have gone with someone who had experience in the women's game. But I think there's good and bad in that CV. Obviously, like you said, that Castilla season was a big one. I'm reserving judgment on his management until we're able to see multiple games. You know, it's not going to be like he comes in and automatically all of the tactical problems are fixed because there are a ton, as we've talked about over and over and over again. I'm excited that we might have some new tactical problems to talk about because Owen and I have kind of complained about talking about the same issues over and over again. But like I said, we're not probably going to see this even if we're not able to see, you know, the Villarreal game. It's going to take time for him to, to get in there, figure things out, implement his style, and then we'll be able to have a more, you know, well-rounded, pro- or well-rounded understanding of what he's trying to do with this team. I don't have too much to add on him. Like, I'm going to give him the leeway that we gave Osnar. But I just wish that it, it just seems to me that the club didn't really go out looking for things. They just had someone in mind and they put him in lo- in that position rather than doing an extensive search, finding people in the game, interviewing a lot of people. I don't know this. It's just what it seems like based on the timing of the sacking and the appointment. So we'll see. I mean, obviously, I wish Torrio the best of luck. I would love to see this team get back on track, hopefully challenge for those Champions League spots but I'm reserving judgment as of now. I did catch some games in like the midst of this craziness and, and Twitter and the Ballon d'Or and everything. So I caught one Elche game in the 16-17 season, and I caught one Real Madrid-Castilla game from the 2011-12 season. So that's my sample size, being very open about that. And there's not much you can take away from two games, especially ones where I couldn't really sit down and analyze sequence by sequence the way I like to. Like I had to, I had to do some some fairly quick viewing. But there are obviously some things that pop out right that are just really easy to see. So both with Real Madrid and both with LJ and these particular games I watched, he preferred 
a 4-4-2, both on offense and defense. In defense, using kind of like a mid-block with Castilla, he would do like a single striker press on goal kick. And that was about it. Like it was more of a classic 4-4-2 medium block, stay compact, look to kind of invite the opposition onto you, and then win turnovers when they try to play between the lines or go out wide. It's pretty standard stuff. And then in possession, from what I noticed from his teams was inverted wingers. So the wingers coming inside to kind of establish a little bit more superiority in the center and very, very aggressive fullback to establish the width. So a pretty classic interpretation of a 4-4-2 in possession. And notice like a, a pretty mixed style between direct passing and possession plays, trying to play direct to the wings at times, a lot of wing combinations, but also often enough showing patience and possession to think that, you know, okay, if the situation calls for it, there's going to be some attempt at trying to, to build patiently through teams. And kind of the main way it happened was trying to access, you know, those wide players between the lines, playing to wide areas. Automatism, maybe you could call it, you saw was as the ball is rotated to the far side, the winger will drop, try to drag a defender with him. Ball will be played over the top of the fullback going in behind. Yeah, that's that's basically the extent to it. If there are any differences with what I saw between that Elche game and the Castilla game, it was that Elche had a little bit more of the ball and a little bit more actual like sequences in possession trying to build two goal, whereas Castilla looked more like just a dominant transition side. Like they didn't have the ball most of the time versus Cadiz in the game I was watching. And their first goal is scored pretty opportunistically. A long ball. Hesse is able to win the second duel, runs in behind, rounds the keeper and scores, which is how they how they scored their opening goal. And obviously when you have players like Morata, when you have players like Hesse, Hapose Lu, you're gonna be a dominant transition side. And that's a very viable way to, to go ahead and, and create goals. So, yeah, I mean, that's the extent of it. I don't have anything super sophisticated to, to bring to you guys, but that was like the outline of what I got from his tactical setup. And to be honest, like, it doesn't look that different from what David Osnar was doing, maybe with the exception of the wingers being way more inverted. Whereas with Osnar, it's just kind of like you have a line on the flanks, oftentimes, unless Cardona was in the side and she would kind of do her own thing, come inside when was necessary. So, I don't know if it's even correct to say like this means he's going to come into Real Madrid Femenino and implement a 4-4-2 structure. Like that's not exactly how it works with coaches. For example, for a long time, Antonio Conte was a 4-4-2 slash 4-2-4 guy. I don't know if many people know that. And then he goes to Italy and he changes to a back three. And then after that, everyone is like, oh, Conte is a back three guy. He has to always play a back three which is not really the case, right? He just adapted to what was in front of him. And since then, he's seen the back three be most useful in the context that he's been in. So it's very possible that Todio comes to rounder from, you know, and he does a 4-2-3 or something like that. Who knows? But obviously, a 4-4-2 fits the personnel that we have. It's something that we've seen in the past. It's had issues when, when, when we've been under Asnar. Be interesting to see what that looks like. I will say, like, with this emphasis on very aggressive fullbacks wingers coming inside particularly as Cardona returns that basic framework 
fix the players we have. It's about can it be more sophisticated than that? Like, what is the set piece defense? If we're pressing, what does the high press look like? If we're being pressed, how do we create superiorities out of like a basic box midfield and double pivot? Those are stuff that just can't be answered looking at these couple of games. But I hope you guys got some sense of of what his teams were like. And maybe you guys can start imagining if you want to, just for the fun of it, what that might look like when applied to our players at Real Madrid Feminino. And obviously we'll have to wait quite a while to be able to actually see it because as it stands, we cannot watch the game versus Villarreal, which is just classic Primera Berdrola. Grant, any thoughts? I know you barely had any time today, but any thoughts on what you heard about what I mentioned about his tactical setups with both sides? Yeah, I think it'll be interesting. Um, you know, with Elche, you maybe don't have the, the, the level of players to necessarily do what you want to do. That Castilla side obviously did have a lot of better players because that also affects how you're able to set up depending on what your goals are for the season, what the personnel is, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'd be interested to see, you know, first lineup and then how it kind of evolves. Because if he was being groomed for this, then he would probably have a good idea of how the team is played and how he could maybe put his stamp on how that team is playing to get them to play better. But the way that this came up kind of came out of the blue, I'm not so sure about how much he may or may not know about Real Madrid Feminino. And it should be interesting to see if he kind of leans on the, the assistant coaches in these first few games, and then he gets an idea of it. And he kind of figures out, okay, these are the players I have. You know, we've seen Instagram posts of Martha Cardona maybe coming back. And you're going to have a level of player that is better than almost every team in this league, arguably, except Barcelona. So the way that he's able to set up should, should maybe change depending on, depending on how he sees that. I think that you know the four, you talked about the four four two. We've seen it work miracles. We've seen it be very terrible. It's a formation that the personnel has kind of made work it more recently. So it'll it'll be interesting to see. I'm very interested to see that first lineup and how and how it changes and how his understanding of this team and those players kind of evolves as we get a few games in. Yeah, and I would go so far as to say that we probably won't have a solid idea of what he wants to do with this team and how he sees players until like February, quite possibly. So we're going to have to be patient and we're, we're going to have to wait. But, you know, oddly enough, for the first time in like forever, I feel like Madridistas are really willing to have that patience with someone because of the simple fact that Osnar is gone. And look, we might question why it took this long, why we waited for us to pick up seven losses and two draws against six wins across all competitions before we decided to say enough is enough. But the simple fact is that this had to happen. And that, let's say Toril like, isn't good and his tactics aren't amazing, there probably is going to be an immediate uplift in team performance because of the simple fact that like the situation had become completely untenable. The spirit of the team was disastrous coming off the pitch in tears, sometimes looking completely distraught. And quite frankly, as we've mentioned before, 
portions of the dressing room being against Osnar. Osnar obviously then having to look behind his back and think, well, who are the players against me? How do I factor that into lineup selection? Like when you start having a situation in a team like that, right, where the focus is taken away from doing your utmost to beat the opponent on the pitch to trying to beat people within your own team, and there's, you know, splits in the dressing room, like that's it, right? It's over. It's done, right? Unless you have a clear plan about how to salvage this, like that's, that's like the end of all teams. A team cannot function at a high level or any level, really, if that's what's going on inside a dressing room, if that's kind of like the division between coach and certain players, right? And that should have been recognized a long time ago, as we talked about, but, you know, it had to happen. And if anything, right, there will be a chance in these opening moments for all of the players in the team to rally behind this new coach who I'm sure they only know much, uh, as much about him as we do, maybe even less, right? So they'll be, you know, open and curious about what he has to offer. And we can actually start building some team unity again. And you have to like also add into the fact like how weird this is in, in a season where we brought in a million different new signings and they kind of walk into this atmosphere and they have to like tread lightly because they're like, what the hell is going on, right? It's just, it, it had to happen. It had to be done. It, it happened way too late. But if this is the only positive effect we have, it may be worth it just if it gives us like a slight boost in team spirit, team unity and results and performances going to this next month because this team was, was rock bottom and but yeah, like I said, it, it had to change. And hopefully this is this is a new figure for everyone to rally behind and have a little bit of positivity and, and drain away some of the, the toxicity from everything. And uh, I would very much enjoy that because, to be quite honest, it had become a bit tiring to hear some of the things I was hearing and follow some of the things I was following and, you know, see like how down the fan base is every game. Like that is very draining as a supporter. And I'm really looking forward to hopefully looking up and uh, being able to, to enjoy watching this team and, and following this team again. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It did have to happen. It took too long. I do think though, you know, as much as we've ragged on Osnar and, discuss some of his tactics and all of that. And obviously we both stand on the line where he needed to go. And we've voiced that opinion for a while now. I think it is important to realize what he's done for Real Madrid Feminino. He's the coach who led them through the transition from CD Thacon to Real Madrid. He led us to that second place finish that magical night in Manchester, where we saw two very good performances against Manchester city that put us in a position to be in the group stage. So Although there were a lot of things that we could detract from, he did get this team to heights that we didn't think were possible in the first season. And whether that was him, had anything to do with him, or you know, was all based off of individual brilliance, he was there. And, and you know, his, his name's going to be etched in Real Madrid Feminino history. And you know, it's it's been it's been real covering David Osnar. He's been very polarizing, but I think it's it's important to recognize that as people are like celebrating so much. And I think that both of us did as well. But it's important to realize what he's done and uh, the impact that he's had. But it is time for for a change. Look, he goes down as the first coach in Madrid feminine history. That's a fact. He promoted Takan to the first division, which no doubt had 
played a really important role in Real Madrid deciding to buy this club and take things over. So he was instrumental in that fact. And by all accounts, he did a pretty good job at that level. I think the simple reality is when you step up to having to coach Real Madrid, you bring in all of these quality players and the expectations are completely different. The tactical solutions have to be different. It was just a bit beyond him. And you know what? I don't think there's necessarily any shame in that. He tried to handle it the best way he could. Obviously, wasn't good enough. But at the end of the day, as long as, as far as we know, you know, there's, there's no abuse, like there's no crossing the line. I'll always have a certain respect. You know, like my criticism will never go so far as hatred, right? I criticize because I have to. That's my job. That's France's job. We speak honestly about what we see. You know, sure, we let our emotions flow because we also are representing and speaking to fans as well as fans ourselves. But, you know, I wish the best for Osnar in whatever his future endeavors are. And there's probably still a lot of growth to do for him as a coach, right? He's a really young coach. Real Madrid, Femenia was his first real big project. And I'm sure there's a lot you can learn from, from this and, and take from this going forward. And yeah, I mean, ultimately, I don't think he was amazing last season, but he did preside over a lot of great moments. He presided over us qualifying for the Champions League. He presided over us beating Real Sociedad in dramatic fashion. So yeah, I, I appreciate you know the effort he put into this, whatever he's done for the club. But like Grant said, it was time for a change. Change has arrived. Now we will see whether this change is good and whether it is better than what we previously had. All right, Grant, as always, appreciate you talking this through with me. And I hope you guys found this at least somewhat informative. A lot of it was some bare bones stuff. If you follow Grant and I on our socials, you'll see more updated opinions about everything. And as the game starts to roll, you can for sure see us start to, to get more concrete opinions on everything whether this was a good appointment or not so for now that's all we have thank you grant thank you guys Al Madrid. Al Madrid.